This is a Journal of Animal Ecology podcast. In this podcast, I am speaking with Chris Latimer, who is a research associate ecologist at the Nature Conservancy and recently had a paper published in the British Ecological Society special issue on citizen science. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Julie. Thanks for for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. So your paper is entitled Habitat Loss and Thermal Tolerances Influence the Sensitivity of Resident Bird Populations to Winter Weather at Regional Scales. It was part of your PhD work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Can you tell us a little bit about your paper? Sure. So we know that climate change and habitat loss are two of the, the main threats that face bird populations today. But when we think about climate change, aside from something like say, curbing greenhouse gas emissions, there's relatively few actions that we could take that would halt the impacts of climate change on human or or coupled human natural systems. And so one of the the best opportunities that mobile species like birds or or other organisms have that allow them to respond to these or or adapt to climate change um, is through their ability to shift their ranges or alter their habitat use in some way or another that either allow them to, to track Uh, changes in more favorable habitat or resource conditions, or avoid the change altogether. And so this is something that actually we as conservation ecologists or resource managers can actually help facilitate by doing things like enhancing connectivity or improving and restoring great habitats. But before we can implement those things, we first need a better understanding of what factors, both intrinsic and extrinsic, are are contributing to these um, shorter-term distributional changes in the occurrence or abundance of birds that, A, could potentially suggest where those favorable habitat conditions may be shifting in the future and identify areas that could potentially be important for conservation and restoration interventions. And so for our study, we were primarily interested in knowing whether and how forest cover could potentially mediate the negative impacts of severe winter weather on the within-season dynamics of resident bird populations in the eastern United States. And second to that, we were interested in what role, if any, a species' physiological thermal tolerance to extremely cold temperatures could play in how they respond to shifting weather variability throughout the winter. And so based on some of our previous work, wintering birds, we thought that there could be two main mechanisms or ways in which the amount of forest within a landscape could potentially alter how species respond to deteriorating weather conditions throughout the winter. And so first we thought, well, forests could potentially act as a buffer through dampening extreme swings in, in temperature variability and therefore potentially enables populations to remain relatively sedentary throughout the winter, especially during those harsh winter conditions in those uh, more forested landscapes. Alternatively, if the primary role of forests is to enhance connectivity, enabling species and populations to better track their shifting habitat or resource conditions, then we expected that populations would potentially be more dynamic and shift their local distributions with those changing weather conditions in those more forested landscapes. And then lastly, we did expect that species with lower thermal physiological tolerances to cold would be more sensitive and show the greatest distributional changes in response to to temperature fluctuations. And so as you can imagine, the data required to study such short-term distributional variability at these broad spatial scales that we were primarily interested in would have been especially challenging for any given group or team of scientists 
to collect. And so instead we relied really heavily on data that were submitted by thousands of volunteer participants in a community science program known as Project Feederwatch. And so I think hopefully uh, we'll have a, a bit more opportunity later to talk about Project Feederwatch. But for now, let's suffice to say that in the program, research partic participants are um, asked to count birds at their, their backyard bird feeders or garden bird feeders and do so repeatedly throughout the winter. And they've been doing so since uh, the late 1980s. And so this provides us with a really rich database and resource that we can then look at how not only how species are, are changing their distributions in response to, to climate change across winter seasons, but also look at the distributional dynamics within season, which is what we were primarily interested in here. And so with these data and, and some of our modeling efforts, we were then able to show that bird populations in those more forested landscapes were actually generally more dynamic, um, especially during those transitionary periods from warm to cold as winter progressed. And this was presumably because uh, those higher amounts of forest enabled species to better track those changing conditions. And so with that, we also found that urban areas appeared to, at least for some species, provide some refuge and that they were more likely to colonize um, urban areas during those particularly harsh winter conditions. And then lastly, we did find that uh, species with lower physiological tolerances to, to extreme cold were actually more likely to shift their distributions in response to those changing temperatures throughout the winter which suggests that they're potentially more sensitive to changes in climatic variability. And so that, in my mind, um, is one of the more interesting and, and um, important findings to come out of our research, because I think it speaks to the potential that incorporating other sources of data like physiology and, and species traits could and, and should be used more in the ecological literature to help uh, inform more generalizable and mechanistic forecast of population and community level responses to future climate changes. Okay, yeah. So that sounds like a really cool study. And as you mentioned yourself, you are using data from a citizen science project called Project Feeder Watch. And you said thousands of, of sites. And just to give everyone an idea of what those thousands actually are, in your study, you use data from three years. And in each year, you have around 3,000, 4,000 sites. And this has been going on since the, since the 1980s, you say. So every year since the 1980s, it's a U.S. project. Yeah. Um, so for our purposes, um, we, we focused mostly on the, the eastern United States. But yes, this project goes on annually throughout the winter in, in both the U.S. and Canada. And what do people do? Do they just sit and watch a feeder station? Is that the general idea? Yeah, in, in the US and, and I'm sure you know, uh, in, in Britain and the UK, bird watching is a very you know, popular pastime. People like and enjoy watching birds. Um, and especially during winter, a lot of people feed birds in their backyards or gardens. And so with this program, every year participants are mailed a packet and they're asked, they have, they're given a, a standardized protocol to follow. Um, and they're just asked to sit and, and watch the birds at their feeder. And then they record the maximum count of birds over a two day period of which they see at their, their feeder. So say on 
on a Saturday and a Sunday, if someone is watching birds at their, their backyard bird feeder, and on Saturday they see 10 chickadees, and on Sunday they see 15, then they would record 15 chickadees for that two-day count period. And Project Feeder Watch asked participants uh, to record these observations on these two-day periods, uh, separated by a five-day break for a maximum of of 22 total counts possible throughout the winter. So that gives you a really large data set that I guess you would never have been able to get on your own. I can just imagine you running around trying to go to 3,000 places every year. (laughs) Yeah. I guess that's uh, one of the strengths of citizen science, that you are able to get this amount of data. Could you imagine any way that you could have done this without the help of all these volunteers? Uh, not, Not really. The resources, especially in, in the bird community that we have available to us in terms of these long-term uh, community science data sets are really fantastic. And um, they've actually enabled us to, to kind of push the field forward and really use birds as a canary in the coal mine, so to speak, and, and looking at these changes in species distributions and variability through time. And yeah, I completely agree. I don't think that these large scale studies would, would be possible or, or they would be increasingly difficult to conduct if it weren't for the, the help of and in, in the enlistment of, of all these community science volunteers. But at the same time, citizen science is also often criticized for being untrustworthy or biased. How do you deal with that? And is that something you've also encountered as a critique from uh, fellow scientists? Yeah, so that's a great question. And so I would say, first off, it's always a concern with using community science data. Um, but I would say that for birds, at least, I, I can't really speak to other community science programs, but I, w- I would argue that I don't think that we should automatically assume that the quality or the data coming out of those programs are untrustworthy because there's many what some would call amateur bird watchers that have actually been birding for longer than I've been alive and um, could almost surely outbird any professional scientist that I know. But on the other hand, uh, we do need to be cognizant and recognize some of the biases that do exist in these programs and some things that can help us um, combat those biases are so having standardized count protocols and also just being familiar and knowing your system and the data that you're working with for instance we know that the first year someone is observing birds in a program such as project feeder watch there's often an increased bias, even if they're a seasoned bird watcher. And that first year startup effect does have an effect on their ability to count and observe birds. And so as an analyst, one might decide to say, exclude all of those observations from the first year someone participates in a, in a project, which is the, the route that we took for, for our paper. But you could just as easily include it um, in your modeling efforts and account for some of that variability. And then, as I mentioned earlier, these community science programs range in their protocols from, from having no protocols to semi-structured protocols like eBird or fully structured protocols like Project Feeder Watch, where participants have a, a structured program that they follow and are asked to record information on effort, which then allows us to, to account for some of the biases that we know that exist. But it is a rapidly and increasingly developing field in ecological literature. 
that I think is an important contribution that folks could make in better understanding the methodological resources available to dealing with some of these biases in, in these community science data sets. Right. Have you participated in Project FIDA Watch yourself as a volunteer? I personally have not uh, participated in Project Feeder Watch, but as a kid, I remember my mom participating in it. But I have participated in others, eBird mostly, and I have done the Audubon Christmas Bird Count, which is a lot of fun. So it, it's a great experience. And I guess if you're you're new or have, you've been kind of dipping your toes in, thinking about getting involved in a community science program, I would highly recommend it. Um, it can be a lot of fun. Uh, it builds community and um, it just gets people out in the, the natural world. And what if you could design your very own citizen science project? <laughs> like ignoring all the things that could go wrong, what would it be about? Oh, man. that's a good question. Um, you know, I don't I don't know that I would I would want to design my own. Um, I think that there's a lot of great projects out there. I think it would be nice to see a central hub so to speak, of these community science programs that have their data available and, and document the, the projects with geographic information. But yeah, there's there's so many creative and interesting projects and, and there's really stuff for everyone out there. Um, if you're interested in video games, there's a, a community science project that you can play a video game like you're driving a car through a, a city and avoiding hitting squirrels. And it's supposed to mimic the evolution of the coat color of squirrels in urban areas. And based on, you know, this, this risk, which is getting hit by cars. So scientists are, are working with all kinds of folks from, from different fields and backgrounds to, to kind of develop these interesting pr programs and platforms. Another interesting one is everyone has a smartphone these days, or it seems like, and people can go out and just record the sound in their environment. And so there's some really interesting NASA funded research going out, going on, documenting changes in the soundscape that folks can just, you know, walk out in their backyard and record the sounds on their, their smartphone and upload it to the cloud. And so it would be nice to see some of these, like a central hub of some of these platforms, because, you know, I'll, I'll be reading a paper and, and just come across a new one that I haven't heard of before. And there's a lot of great creative people working on in this, this realm. Yeah. So it's maybe still a little bit hard for people who are interested in participating to figure out where to go to find the projects that they might want to participate in. I think there, there are a few platforms being developed to host projects, but it's still very uh, regional based or country based. So you'll have one platform for the US and one platform for the UK or maybe even multiple platforms. But it, it does seem like the citizen science community is, is starting to come together. And it's interesting to see these developing projects. I mean, you mentioned maybe the classic citizen science project is bird watching, but now you have gamification projects like the one you mentioned with the squirrels which is very different because that doesn't really take you out into nature. You don't see a real squirrel. Is that okay too? Yeah, I, I would say for me, I think one of the, one of the big drives for me personally in participating in, in a community science program is getting out in nature. And increasingly I'm, I'm less of a, a checklist guy and I, I just like watching species interactions and, and their behavior. But 
I know that there are folks even even within my family that you know going out and spending a day watching birds doesn't seem like a, a very fun activity and so I think that there is room especially for some of those gamification type projects to engage people in the scientific process and I think that this is one of the big opportunities for community science projects and I, I think that we should as ecologists and researchers uh, from other fields, think more about how how we might take this or collect information on folks that are engaging in these various community science programs and understand how it helps them connect with nature. And so if you're a, a video gamer and, and that's what you enjoy doing, but you play a game that helps determine how uh, coat color evolves in, in cities by playing a video game of, of cars hitting squirrels, then I think that you are connecting with nature in your own way. And I think it would be very interesting and important for the community science field to to better understand, well, how does participation in these various programs, how does that relate to to how people engage with nature? And then following along in a, a longitudinal uh, survey type design, understanding how it could potentially influence how people perceive nature and change their values on, on conservation. So are people that participate in community science projects, are they more likely to be invested and engage in, in conservation actions? And that can be anything from, from helping out your local Audubon Society or giving a donation or even how you vote or respond to political issues that affect the environment. And so I think that there's a huge opportunity for not only us as ecologists, but um, social scientists and other fields to, to come together and really kind of hone in on some of these issues that, that other ways that we can think about using community science data for conservation. I think that's a really important point. We sometimes forget that we have different starting points in what our relationship to nature is and whether we really want to change that. And if we can reach people in their homes, in front of their computers or TVs, then the next step is, does that make a difference? Like you said, does that push people to become more involved in NGOs or in policymaking and I think there's a future for papers coming out relating to that. Um, so I'm excited to see what's going to happen. Yeah, me too. And, and I, I also think going back to that point, you know, I, I think that community science should be for everyone. And I think, you know, having these platforms available for people with various interests and, and lived experiences is important and, and understanding the barriers um, that prohibit certain groups from participating, I think, is another another big opportunity for our community to come together and, and better understand how how we can make these these platforms more available and accessible to to everyone. Because I think it it would benefit everyone, not not just scientists, for participating in in these programs. I completely agree. So. Thanks, Chris. I, I don't have any more questions, but is there anything you would like to add before we round up? I really enjoyed reading your paper and people can have a look at it too. It's out now. Well, thank you. Uh, no, I don't think I have anything else to add, but thanks for the opportunity to share our paper. And yeah, I look forward to 
to publishing more in the Journal of Animal Ecology in the future? Or? 